Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 and reading verses 11 to 17. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature and fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. As grass withers and flowers fade, uh, God's word indeed alone endures forever. And may he bless it to us. You know, there is a uh, rhetoric, and I use that word rhetoric to uh, define uh, a common uh, message or a common sentiment that is often being communicated. And within our political system over the past couple years especially, We know there's always division that exists within politics. But with the last uh, couple years especially, uh, politicians from all sides are noting how divided our nation is from coast to coast to coast. And there's a variety of issues that uh, are bringing and seeding uh, that division to be sure. What I've noted is that every side is laying blame on opposing parties for the cultural and the provincial and regional divisive spirit that has especially come to light in these last two years. Uh, You've seen it. Uh, I think, I, I was trying to do a little study of this, but I think in the last few years, last three years, the number of members that have been cast out of their caucuses is huge. It's significant. And it's this idea that even though there may be different opinions on issues which each party platform is trying to communicate, if you don't promote the will of the many uh, you have no place within our our midst. And, and that is something that now comes into the whole of the nation. There is often an understanding, a truth, an underlying unspoken truth that where division exists within the leadership, division will exist within the body. It can't help but happen. It's one of the things that we note even within our own session meetings as a church. If the eldership is not united, even though we may have differences of opinions and understandings, if in the end we are not united, that division then seeds itself into the body. And 
Haven't we seen that in... And bear with me with politics. I'm not preaching politics, but just analyzing what we see happening here. But look at the coalitions that have formed within the last couple years. Not just coalitions, but uh, these individual little parties that are popping up. And, and as you see this, you understand that unity is something that is very desperately fragile. It's like a thread that's holding up a hundred pound weight and will break at any moment. And everything comes crashing down. And you, and you look at that. You, you see what's happened in Alberta uh, this past week or the Green Party last year or the Conservatives in Ontario, or the Liberal and NDPs, and how they're facing uh, uh, feedback from their own supporters. Well, we see that divisiveness out there. Sadly, the politics of the land has come into the church, and disunity has risen as well within the visible church respecting some very secular matters. I'm not going to debate these issues, but we've seen that in these last two years, and it bears mentioning it as we talk about the whole issue of the unity of the church, and in particular this morning, the unity of the faith. How the the Disunity has risen within the church respecting issues over masks and vaccinations and compliance to government protocols. And the irony is is that most of those issues have disappeared, which we knew they would. It was something that was very temporal. But within the church, distrust and disunity still linger. (laughs) It's still there. And many people who have moved and shifted from one church to another to follow uh, the principles of another man that agreed with their principles uh, are are left floundering. Uh, Where do I go? What do I do? This kind of disunity is nothing new. If you were to read 1 Corinthians 3, in fact, the whole of the letter of the Corinthians, it's, it's dealing with this issue of how disunited the church has become. And, and Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 uh, doesn't hold back in his criticism of what this disunity looks like. He calls it carnal behavior where envy, strife, and divisions have risen because uh, of the leader that you prefer. <laughs> and my friends, that, that happened within the churches in these last two years. I prefer this leader who does this in respect of the government's uh, protocols. And others are saying, no, I, pre- I prefer this leader who's done this in respect of government's protocols. And, and people have left their churches that they've been members of for so many years to follow the protocols of another man. Doesn't that just sound like what Paul has said here? Some of you say, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Peter, and I am of Christ. We get into following men. And Paul very pointedly says, if this is how you are, you are still carnal. 
For where there is envy, strife, and divisions, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? You get the message. <laughs> it's, it, it is really worldly, godless behavior in that way. Unity is a precious thing. Trust me, parents know this. What a, what a joy and blessing it is to see our children playing together. What, what a crisis. What a, what a hectic day it becomes when all they do is squabble and fight over something as insignificant even as a toy. We see it. Unity is precious. You know, I was thinking about this in light of the church and in light of the apostles that Christ chose. Let me, let me just give you an overview of the men that Jesus chose to be apostles. And I'll tell you why it's something to note in just a few minutes. But Christ's apostles, one was a traitor. We know him well. But Jesus loved him. <laughs> loved him to the end, we hear in John 13. He was a traitor. One was a Pharisee, uh, born out of due time, uh, Paul, of course. But he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Really had to confront the legalism of his own heart. Many were lowly fishermen. Two of them were called sons of thunder because they liked to provoke the group. (laughs) And they did on several occasions provoke the group. We all have that child in our homes that loves to provoke, don't we? Well, James and John, the sons of thunder. One was a doubter. Imagine hearing the testimony of his uh, other ten brothers and even the testimony of others and saying, I don't believe you. One was a skeptic who had little respect for people from Nazareth. (laughs) Does anything good come from there? One was a proud, boastful denier who didn't mind putting down his brothers to elevate himself. One was a tax collector, despised. Can you imagine the other men who probably at some point maybe gave him money uh, as a tax collector? He's now in their midst. One was a zealot, a Canaanite. Some versions will say he's a Canaanite, but it's it's a sect within Israel. They were known as the Canaanians, zealots who wanted to rid Israel of Roman occupation. These were all men of weak and not so noble backgrounds. They were men who often had to have their pride tempered on points of greatness. But they were also the men whom Christ brought together to bring forth the foundation of truth upon which the church is built. Isn't that amazing? You hear that in Ephesians 2, uh, beginning at verse 20. That we as a church, we have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building fit it together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. 
These aren't perfect men that the Lord called and banded together to be those who would establish a foundation with Him as the cornerstone, a foundation of truth where His gospel would go forth into the nations. It is something to consider. And and Paul here, we know this very clearly in in chapter 4, with all of the truth that has come forth even in Paul's day and time, with the foundation of truth upon which the, the church was being built, and much of that truth that he expounded in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of this letter, with all of that, what was Paul's first concern for the church? Your unity. That that oneness that we are to have as God's people. A unity of the Spirit in that bond of peace. We heard that last week. That the God who is able to do the most unimaginable thing, the holy God of heaven, is able to take a wretched sinner here on earth and make peace with them through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, is the bond of unity in the Spirit that keeps us together. Paul is is making this point again even as he moves further on as we see in verse 13 as he talks about that unity how it is to translate into a, a unity of the faith. The faith. I want us to just think on the, that little phrase the faith first of all. Unlike Jude's letter where he tells us to contend for the faith where he tells us that we are to contend for the doctrines of truth and the doctrines of the gospel to ensure that they are not corrupted, that we are to fight and hold fast to that which is true and to promote that in the world. Paul's concern is about how Christ wants us to have unity in that faith. A unity that will reach and speak to the world about something they don't know anything about. As much as the world tries for oneness, one global market, one one economic money system, one political system, as much as they strive for that oneness, God has seen to it that it will never happen. You have from the Tower of Babel forward, God has ensured that people of the earth will never find unity outside of Christ. It won't happen. But it ought to happen in Christ. And Paul here is revealing how Christ intends the unity of the faith to be gained and exercised. And what is the faith that he is talking about? Well, it's what he's written about in chapters 1, 2, and 3. The faith about who God is, the foundational truths of God and His sovereignty and His grace that meets us. God, who from before the foundations of the world loved and chose you in His Son. In other words, as hard as it is, election is something to which we're to be united over. (laughs) It's part of the faith. And Christ's atonement and, and power and headship 
That, that is part of the faith that we hold to recognize. He alone is the way and the truth and the life. You cannot come to the Father except through Him. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy presence? Only such a one who has been atoned for, who is covered by a blood that speaks of justice served and of cleansing accomplished. One who has the power to break the bonds of sin and and to release us from the fear of death which Satan holds us in bondage to. And one who has now acclaimed the authority uh, over all of the earth and exercises His authority over all of the earth as the head of His church, for His church. And man's sinfulness, our need, what are we outside of Christ? What are you, dear people, outside of Christ? Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, you are children of wrath, children of disobedience, children who are dead in trespasses and sin, and who need that uh, regenerating work of the Spirit to bring forth life to God. That's who you are outside of Christ. And the faith speaks to that. And grace, the grace of God, the unmerited, undeserved loving kindness of God to an unworthy sinner. And I read a a nice meme yesterday. I showed it to, to Joanne. I do take probably about 20 minutes a day to work through memes that pop up and get my humor going. But one of them was, I'm not sure who who may have put it, but one of them showed up on my Facebook feed. And it it was captioned with this, and then you had to scroll down a bit. These are the things that you are entitled to and deserve in life. And And then it appeared this long sheet of paper. That was blank. (laughs) And I thought, yeah, that's great. (laughs) What are we entitled to? What what do we deserve? And and God's word tells us, you deserve his wrath. But grace has met us. And that grace that meets us brings about peace. Peace in our own life with God. And thus peace with one another. The walls that would divide us, Paul has said in chapter 2, are broken down. The cross has done that. And it's marvelous. I I think that's what the psalmist says. We've seen the works of the Lord. And they are marvelous before our eyes. Who can comprehend that that one work of Christ does not just simply atone for my sins and and cleanses me and, and makes me a child of God. But that work of Christ on the cross has broken down all of that enmity that should exist between you and me so that we can come together as the people of God and be one. That's the faith. (laughs) And and it's that unity and that faith that we are to be striving for. And are you? Isn't that the question? Is this what I strive for? Well, the first thing we see here in verses 11 to 13 is how that unity occurs. 
how that unity occurs. And when you read there, when he starts talking about how Christ gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, the one thing you cannot miss is that the unity that Paul speaks of, that unity of the faith, is reliant upon God's Word. That's what all these offices pertain to. The apostles and prophets who brought forth the Word and the teaching of Christ in the power of the Spirit, in that inspiration of the Spirit, and laid out the truth of God and the truth of Christ for us to know and believe. And the evangelists who went out and into the world to bring that truth to the world. And establishing the churches of Christ and, and then the pastors and teachers who now come and who serve in the local level ministering God's Word week after week faithfully in those ways. That, that's how Christ is seeing the unity of the faith occurring. It, it occurs by what Christ gave And what did Christ give? Look how it begins in verse 11. He Himself gave. (laughs) This is Jesus Christ. As He has ascended into glory, God gave Him the authority to give gifts to men, as you see in verse 8. And that was uh, quoting from Psalm 68 with a slight difference. Understanding that in His ascension glory, He had authority to give gifts to men. There's a slight difference. You notice that there are four different passages in the New Testament that speak about spiritual gifts. Most common is 1 Corinthians 12. And and it's something we, we heard membership vows this morning. It's something that whenever we receive a member into our fellowship and into the congregation... One of the things we often ask is, what do you see as your gifts that you are able to give uh, to the church and serve the church with? Because we know, we believe, and we hear it from 1 Corinthians 12, to every one of you, gifts have been given so that you may minister to one another in the name of Christ. The Spirit does this. And so we understand spiritual gifts given by Christ through the Spirit come and bring service in the church. And they're distributed by the Spirit to every believer. But there's a nuanced difference here in verse 11 when Paul writes about what Jesus has done. And he's saying here that the gifts that He has given to the church are people. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. And and in our understanding of Scripture, the evangelist and pastor and teachers are the two continuing offices. Christ has given you people to serve you. And particularly in our setting, Christ has given you 
pastors and teachers who shepherd and teach and who equip you for the work of the ministry, who help you to become ones who can go forth into where you live and and bear forth that ministry of reconciling sinners to God. God pleading through us, be reconciled to me, O sinner. And Christ is helping this unity of the faith to occur by what He gives. Pastors and teachers who are there to build you up as the body of Christ. And and there a question comes. I'm not spending as much time on on what verse 12 is telling what what the pastor and teacher is doing. But I want you to stop and think how Christ has given you such. Why? You need it. Not just for your own personal walk with the Lord, but you need it to be one in Christ as the body of Christ. (laughs) One of the things of being a church planter in the last seven years, uh, virtually every person who comes through our doors are asked this question, who is your pastor? And you would, maybe you wouldn't be shocked, but I'll assume you will be shocked at the number who say, well, I don't need one. I don't need one. I know how to be spiritual in my own life. The goal here is to draw you together in the unity of the faith. And in giving you pastors and teachers, you acknowledging those who are over you, shepherding you, taking care of you, those who are teaching you and and showing you from God's Word the things you need to know to be His congregation, His body. (laughs) And what He gives, what Christ is encouraging, you see in verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There's really four things there. That he is saying, why I have given you uh, such men to, to watch over your souls is so that you can come together in a unity of the faith. And, and this is something that, that you need to understand. Why is that weekly worship so necessary? It isn't just in that manner of where we are giving glory and blessing to God. That preeminently is what we do when we worship. But it's at this time where we are all together exposed to that same sanctifying truth week after week after week where our mind and thinking is being challenged by the Word of God and where our wills And consciences are being conformed to God's will and where our hearts and desires are being conformed to God's desires. It isn't so that you all can be like me or be like a pastor or follow a man. It is so that together all of you would have your mind and your will and your heart, your very soul conformed to the mind and the will and the heart of God. And I say this just as an aside. 
And while it's true, especially in our day and age, you can sit home, live stream somewhere. You can go online to sermonaudio.com. You can go and, and feed your soul every day of the week, which I don't think is necessarily a good thing. It's one thing to sit and say, I'm going to listen to a sermon on Wednesday. And, and you're going through a small series in that way. It's another thing to come and worship, hear God's Word here, and then tomorrow hear another sermon, and then Tuesday hear another sermon, and Wednesday, and so on, and so on, and so on. My friends, your mind, your spiritual soul cannot handle that. Barely. And I don't say this to guilt you. I, I get it. You barely remember the message that you heard on Sunday when Wednesday hits. Isn't that true? And yet this is where the Lord has said, I will bless my people and bring forth, Psalm 133, bring forth that blessing of life together. A unity of the faith. Knowledge of the Son of God. And how important it is that we are all together hearing the same wisdom of God's Word that our understanding of who Jesus Christ is is being formed by God's Word, but being formed together. How necessary that is to curb uh, the idolatry that is often forged by personal views of Christ and of His Word. We do that. Well, I, I think Jesus is like this. Well, what makes you think Jesus is like this? <laughs> Again, you, you, you don't be surprised, but, but I hear that language all the time. And you can't help but see that it isn't Christ encouraging a growth in the knowledge of Christ. It's something else. A mature man. Christ sees that this gift that He has given to you as a way of, of bringing about unity where we are maturing together. Again, not in our own ideals, but we are maturing and becoming full of Christ as He says there. A perfect man where, where the fullness of Christ is, is filling us. Where, as we heard from 2 Peter 1, where we understand that, that our faith in Christ is something that must be built up with moral uprightness and good understanding and self-control and on and on until you get to, to love. He's saying... This is the maturity that you are to be seeking together and helping together. And this is where the unity of the body comes. And, and as Christ encourages it, He uses us to encourage it with one another. It's easy. I'm guilty of this at times, but when I look at people and I think, where are they in their faith? And we will use language like this. Well, they're weak in their faith. Or they're immature in their faith. Or they're strong, healthy. But collectively, 
We need all of those sorts in our midst because we aren't maturing in and of ourselves. We're to be maturing together. Paul dealt with that and you heard it from Titus too. The older women are teaching the younger. The older men, the younger. That kind of mentoring that is necessary. Christ striving to encourage that as we look to this unity of the faith. And again, the challenge comes and meets us. Is this your testimony? I mean, it's easy. It really is easy to make church simply a place where you come on Sunday morning and then you go on with your life. The unity of the faith that Paul is talking about here is not just simply a unity of doctrine. Well, this is a Reformed church that that we're going to go because their doctrine is in order. It's a church where there's a building up of the body in that faith. And very shortly we'll come to what that unity causes and you'll see how it benefits. But is this your testimony? I have a, very quickly, just a personal pet, I don't want to say peeve, but I don't know what other word to use. But I don't call it the Reformed faith. Because there's only one faith. And some people's faith and and doctrine may have not reached the same pattern of faith and doctrine that we call Reformed theology. That's the better word. But it's the one faith. And one of our goals is to build people up in that faith and to open them up to the doctrines of the Gospel that that bring out the glory of God's grace. (laughs) I mean, it's the most marvelous thing for someone to consider. God loves me? (laughs) Who am I? How much of that grace we need to learn. And and isn't that what we are told in 2 Peter chapter 3? I think it's verse 15. Grow in the what? Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're here to be helping one another to that end. And what does that unity cause? Well, we see it in verses 14 to 16. And, it, and it's more than just saying, well, uh, they, they're growing in knowledge. Maturity is not simply gaining knowledge. It has a behavior that marks growth. A movement away from childishness. Isn't that what we desire of our children? And it's what Christ desires of His people. Moving on from the elemental doctrines and moving on from the mere milk of the Word. But growing. Growing up in Christ. And and again, it's interesting what He focuses on here. In verse 14, he, He sees this unity of the faith Helping in maturing discernment. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. How many winds of doctrine blow through the visible church every year? (laughs) I always think of of what a, a dear elderly lady said to me very early in my ministry. She said, just remember that if it's new, it isn't true. Because if it's true, it's not new. And yet, 
Year after year, something new comes forth because we're always searching for that one thing that will attract the world. And we don't understand that the gospel itself without the work of the Spirit will never seem attractive to the world (laughs) because it reveals their sin. And the world hates to see its sinfulness. And yet, winds of doctrine blow through and Christians of every denomination jump on the bandwagons mostly out of dissatisfaction with what they're experiencing within the church. I think of all over the years in my brief life as as a believer, as an adult believer, uh, Promise Keepers, Alpha Course, 40 Days of Purpose, the Emerging Church, the Young, Restless, and Reformed Movement. And it goes on and on and on. And you just see it rising and then disappearing and then rising and disappearing. And why? Why am I often so skeptical? I I believe it, it, it... Paul himself is the one who nailed it in in Acts in Acts chapter uh, twenty when he says I thought I had it marked here excuse me for a second where he writes this warning the church for I know that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock also from among yourselves men will rise up and speak perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves why why am i so skeptical of all these new things that rise up because through trickery as paul mentions here in verse 14 through trickery through cunning crafting deceitful plotting of trying to take you away. And most often, this kind of uh, wind of doctrine happens for two reasons. They either want your money or they want your following to feed their bellies. And it's easy to follow such because there's no accountability. But what you don't realize is apart from the local setting, you really do not get that shepherding care that you need for your souls. Maturing discernment and a maturing grace. Verses 15 and 16. And what I note about these verses, again, there's so much more that could be said, but verse 15 begins about speaking the truth in love. Verse 16 ends about being built up in love. And that's what Christ has His eye set upon when He speaks about the unity of the faith that He is striving for in our midst. Love begins and ends these verses. Think about it again with 2 Peter 1 verses 5-7. to How faith was the beginning and you add to your faith until you end with what? Love. <laughs> The growth in God's Word, growth in God's truth, it it brings you into that fuller headship of Christ over your life where it cannot help but bring more gracious, caring, working love for the body of Christ. That's where doctrine is to bring us. And if your truth-speaking doesn't bring things into this direction then love isn't the motivation. Love's the motivation. 
and growth in love is the result. Love for God, love for one another. And doesn't that bring us right back to what Christ said to His disciples when He called them to such otherworldly service? He says, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. And the world will know that you're my disciples. There's where the unity of the faith brings us. Now I know I probably have left more questions in some minds here, but I want us to see the unity that Christ is striving for and which He has set His Spirit upon us to accomplish and what He calls us to as His people. Because this is a unity that we cannot forge ourselves. It is one that Christ desires to bring about in His Spirit. And are we submissive to this? Are we submitting ourselves to God in Christ? Let's pray.